Well, don't stop now. I mean. <laughs> there it is. All right. Now I can start. Oh, flip 180. Are you guys out? They already gone. I didn't hear the herd. That's amazing. Awesome. Okay, find where I'm at in my notes here. Okay, good. <sighs> Amen. Well, um, today I am going to talk some more about our big topic of shame. Um, there's, there's just some more I want to, I want to address because I think there's, um, some, some lingering issues that we've got to deal with with shame in our lives. Um, you know, a few weeks ago, I, I spoke about shame and I shared some, uh, thoughts from John Piper about shame and how he had identifies, um, two types of shame in the Bible. And he called one type misplaced shame, and he called another type well-placed shame. You guys remember that? If you were here a few weeks ago, good. So misplaced shame is the shame that we feel when we do something that was good, but it didn't turn out maybe the way we hoped it would, um, Shame sometimes is that misplaced shame is sometimes the shame we feel when uh, we stand up for our Christian faith and we get made fun of. We get persecuted, you know, for living our lives according to the Bible. That is misplaced shame. That is shame that should never show up in your life. Now, the other kind was well placed shame. And well placed shame was the shame we feel. When we dishonor God. You know, misplaced shame was, uh, you know, it can happen when we do our best, but we still don't succeed. We did something embarrassing, like maybe wearing the wrong clothes to a party. Um, but well-placed shame is, is the shame we feel when we dishonor God through either sin, uh, maybe it's disobedience, Maybe it's how we treated another person and, and we violate God or our relationship with the Lord or we violate our relationship with another person. That's well-placed. You should feel shame. And so when we violate God's word or we sin against God or people, that's, that's when well-placed shame is going to show up. And I, I also shared um, that whether we have misplaced shame or whether we have well-placed shame, that we have to get rid of it. You remember that? Yeah. Even if, yeah, I, I, I did something wrong. I know I did something wrong. Oh, I feel terrible. Okay, good. But that can't last forever. You cannot stay in that place of shame for the rest of your life. It wrecks everything Jesus died for us. It is for a season but not a very long one. And again, I'll, I, reminding us that we should never allow misplaced shame to touch our life in the first place. When you stand up for Jesus and you're living the gospel and someone says, 
you're stupid, you're dumb, why are you doing that? Oh my gosh, are you holier than thou? What's your, you know, all those things that people love to throw on us and want us to feel ashamed for living a certain way. Remember when Mike Pence came out and he gave his, his rule for hanging out with other women? He said, I don't do it. I don't go to dinner with other women. I don't go to parties where there's alcohol with other women without my wife present. And the world trampled him. Tried to sh- just heap shame on him. How dare you? You're not allowing women to come up in the world and, you know, powerful women and you're you know, all this garbage. Thank God for Pence, and he's got a relationship with Jesus, and he can say, I could care less what any of you think. That was a perfect example of misplaced shame that was trying to be heaped on that man of God. And he said, nope. And he is squeaky clean, isn't he? No accusations. Now, if we do sin and we feel shame, It comes, but we can't allow it to stay forever. We can't let it be like a scarlet letter A on our chest for the rest of our lives. We have to deal with shame. We have to get it out of our lives no matter what kind of shame we have. And the way we dealt with shame is what? We have to believe the promises of God. Say this with me. Say, I have to believe the promises to get rid of shame. See, whether you've got well-placed shame, like I did do something wrong, or I did nothing wrong and that's coming on me, either way, we have to deal with it through the promises of God. When we sin and we feel well-placed shame, we have to believe the words of Jesus when he says, you are forgiven, go in peace. You have to believe that. And when we feel misplaced shame, for living out the Bible, or for standing for Jesus. The remedy for shame is the same. We have to do what the Apostle Paul says in 2 Timothy chapter 1, and verse 12. He says, I am not ashamed, for I know whom I have believed, and I am convinced that he is able to guard until that day what has been entrusted to me. Everyone say, I am not ashamed. ashamed. Let's hear it from the youth section. I am not ashamed. Let's hear it from the other parts of the church. Oh, that's awesome. We are not ashamed of the gospel. And it's tied to believing. For I know whom I have believed. Romans 10, verse 11. It says, For Scripture says, Everyone who believes, say, Everyone who believes everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame everyone say when i believe in him i am not put to shame yeah woo whether we feel misplaced shame or well-placed shame we've got to get it out of our lives and we do it through the promises of god amen now Today, I want to take this a bit further because I want to talk about our deliverance from shame. 
And when I say deliverance, I'm talking about how do we keep shame from touching our lives in the first place? How do we keep shame from showing up in our lives less and less and less? I mean, think about Jesus. Multiple times throughout his life and ministry, people tried to heap shame on him. And every, every time he hung out with prostitutes and tax collectors and sinners, all the religious people wanted to, to heap shame on him. How does he do that? How dare he? For shame. For being with those kinds of people. You know, when Jesus was in the, the home of Simon the Pharisee, and here comes this prostitute in, and they all know who she, what kind of girl she is. And she comes in and she's bawling her eyes out at the feet of Jesus. Bawling her eyes out, cleaning his feet with her tears, drying them with her hair. And here's Simon the Pharisee, and he's embarrassed. And he wants everyone else to be embarrassed in this room. He wanted Jesus to feel the shame and the uncleanness of this woman. But guess what Jesus did? He refused to accept it. Not going to let this happen. You know, never once in the Bible does it say, and Jesus walked away in shame. <laughs> you know, it, it doesn't say, and Jesus hung his head in shame, for the Pharisees had finally tricked him. <laughs> it's not in there, is it? That doesn't show up anywhere in your Bible. Jesus never succumbed to shame. And while I understand that we may not be 100% immune to shame, I believe that a major part of the mission of Christ was to deliver us from shame. So why are we hitting this so hard? Well, I, one reason, I think, is because shame is deadly to our identity. It is absolutely deadly to our identity. It is deadly to our identity because unlike guilt, you know, because guilt is different than shame. Guilt says, I did something wrong. That's why you feel guilty. I did something wrong. But shame comes and shame says, I am something wrong. Guilt says, I did something wrong. Shame says, I am something wrong. See, guilt will show up, and that guilt, that can lead us to repentance because we did something wrong. But shame shows up, and it leads us to depression. It leads us down this spiral of, of I'm worthless, I'm, I'm stupid, I'm dumb. And you get depressed because 
you are the problem. Not something I did is the problem, not my behavior. I am wrong. And those are two huge differences. See, I can, I can have guilt, and I can still believe that God loves me. I can believe that I am loved by God. But shame comes in, and it says, you don't deserve love because you are unlovable. And so the enemy of our soul knows how important it is to destroy our identity. He knows that if he can get us to agree with shame and believe that I am something wrong, terrible, or broken, then I will not live out my destiny in God. I mean, think about all the teachings that are out there right now about identity. I mean, you probably listened to one last week. Something about sonship, something about daughtership, something about I'm an overcomer, something that, who am I in God? I'm a child of God. I mean, it's everywhere, constantly reinforcing this problem. Most of the people, they send me podcasts, and it's all about identity. Hey, listen to this. This is so cool. Hey, check this one out. It's all about who you are. I mean, how many times have you asked, you know, God, who am I? What's your plan for me, right? I mean, the prophetic team's putting this, this whole gift assessment to help figure you out. <laughs> it's the whole point. Think for a moment how many times a day do you see th say things like, I'm a loser? I'm stupid. I'm a terrible dad. I'm a terrible mom. I'm a terrible husband. I, I, I stink as a wife. I, I'm a terrible friend. You may think those statements are meaningless, the Bible says they're life and death. Proverbs 18, 21. Death and life are in the power of the tongue, and those who love it will eat its fruits. James, he says a whole bunch about the tongue in chapter 3, verse 6. It says, and the tongue is a fire, a world of unrighteousness. The tongue is set among our members, staining the whole body, setting on fire the entire course of life, and set on fire by hell. For every kind of beast and bird, of reptile and sea creature can be tamed and has been tamed by mankind, but no human being can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil full of deadly poison. With it we bless our Lord and Father, and with it we curse people who are made in the likeness of God. From the same mouth come blessing and cursing. My brothers, these things ought not to be so. Does a spring pour, uh, pour forth from the same opening, both fresh and salt water? Can a fig tree, my brothers, bear olives, or a grapevine produce figs? Neither can a salt pond yield fresh water. Our tongue and what we say mean something. And you can curse yourself. 
can curse your relationships. And when we allow shame to get into our hearts, it will assassinate your identity. Because every sin and every failure from our past, it's got this this weight of shame that's trying to drag us down and define us. Shame is constantly trying to dig a hole that we have to somehow earn our way out of. You know, I've, I've got to prove to everyone I'm not a bad person. I've got to prove that I'm not that, that guy that, that you encountered a year ago. I've got to be good enough so I stop feeling like I'm a bad person. And the sad thing with shame is that it doesn't just touch our lives. We actually allow shame to assassinate the people around us. I mean, how many times have you written someone off because they had a sinful past? How many times have you written someone off because they sinned against you? One too many times. Nope, not going to let that happen again. Nope, you can stay out there. I don't trust you anymore. You are a bad person. See, that's what shame does. It comes through me when you hurt me, and I start to form who you are in my brain. You are untrustworthy. You are a bad person. You are a liar. You are a cheater. And I am now framing your identity and I'm allowing shame to come through me and I'm assassinating your character. How many times have you judged a brother or sister in Christ or a leader as being a bad person instead of judging them as a human who does bad things? There is a difference. And when we allow this to happen, we are allowing shame to work through us to destroy relationships and to cut off roads of blessing. Shame is literally trying to show up in our everyday lives, every single day. It's trying to define us in every way, in every role we play. It's the invisible dunce hat hat that we wear remember those they don't do it anymore but when you were a dumb kid and you got the wrong answer we stick the dunce hat on you so the whole class will shame you stupid it is amazing but that's what we did it's how we 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 corrected dumb kids right We hand out the proverbial scarlet letter A to everyone who's failed sexually. Shame is trying right now to define the kind of mother you are. It is trying to define what kind of father you are. You know, by the way, I'll share this. Michelle Hughes wrote a great blog this week. Uh, and then she talked about how we can love each other through our beautiful messes. 
And it's, I, she didn't mention the word shame, but man, it's all around there. So um, it hits on these issues of shame. So please go read it. Go to our website. It was a great article. But shame is showing up. It's trying to define you. It's showing up in married people's bedrooms. Shame is definitely showing up if you're sinning and having sex outside of marriage. But shame is trying to show up at my job. It's trying to show up in my relationships. It's trying to show up in our leadership roles, in our volunteer roles. It's trying to show up at the grocery store when our kids are acting like crazy people. Don't tell me you ain't feeling shame. Every action and behavior has shame trying to trounce on it, trying to jump on it and define who we are. You know, right now, in the body of Christ at large, um, many parts of the church are going through some very major identity crisis. So many mainline denominations are trying to address the problem of shame. But listen, unfortunately, they are getting rid of shame by changing the gospel and calling lifestyle sins that were once shameful as no longer sinful, and therefore they are no longer shameful. And tragically, when we call sin good to get rid of shame, we have abandoned the Bible's path of deliverance. So, where does shame begin? Let's go to Genesis chapter 2. Starting in verse 21, it says, So the Lord caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man. And while he slept, he took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. And then the man said, This at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore, man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. Now, isn't that last sentence interesting? They were not ashamed. I mean, think about of all the emotions, all the negative emotions that could have been stated here. Shame is the one that gets mentioned. They had no shame. It, it doesn't say, uh, you know, they had no fear. They had no doubt. They had no anxiety, which I would feel if I was butt naked. <laughs> Woo, panic attack or any of that stuff, I... I've been delivered for a long time, but but it doesn't say that. It doesn't say there's you know they had no fear, no doubt, no anxiety. 
No shame is how this couple is being identified. It's how they're being defined. And I think it is so significant. When we look at this perfect relationship between a man, a woman, and God. It is a perfect picture that is absent of shame. Adam and Eve were perfectly relating to each other and God in this place of perfect intimacy and vulnerability. And even though these two people were running around the garden with no pants on, they never once struggled with thoughts of shame. And I think this is how God, this is a picture of how God really wants to relate to us. God is looking and longing for sons and daughters to live in his presence with no trace of shame. Now, let's read on in this story. Because as we find out, it doesn't last very long. Starting in chapter 3, verse 1, it says, And the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, Did God actually say, You shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, You shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. She also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. And he said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? And the man said, it's the woman. <laughs> She's the problem here. I told you, don't take a rib, take a tooth. We, we could have done better if it was a tooth. So the man played the blame game and said, the woman whom you gave me, this is your fault, God. The woman who you gave me, she gave me the fruit of the tree, and then I ate. And the Lord God said to the woman, what is this that you have done? She played the blame game too. She said, the serpent deceived me, and I ate. So here we've got this first couple in perfect communion with God. And they get lied to. They sin against God. And what is the first thing they notice? We're naked. Naked, you just don't have clothes on. Naked is you're naked. You don't have any clothes in, you're up to something. 
Naked and naked. <laughs> Don't forget. <laughs> they realized that they were naked and they experienced their very first negative emotion, their very first crippling emotion. They feel shame. So here we can see that shame has been with the human race since the very first couple. Now I ask the question, how did the enemy get this couple to wreck this amazing intimate relationship with God? How did this happen? Well, Dr. Kurt Thompson in his book, the soul of shame, he dissects this passage of scripture just amazingly. And, and I'm going to read an excerpt from his book. It was on page 104 concerning this passage in Genesis 3. And this is what he says. He says, we see that the serpent has no trouble talking about God rather than inviting the woman to have a conversation with God. This is one of shame's most important means of creating the isolation that supports its effective gravitas or the severity of this thing. At this point, the woman can begin to consider God in her own mind all by herself. She is given the opportunity now to decide independently who God is and what he thinks and feels in response to her. She begins the process of analyzing God, of judging him from a distance rather than interacting with him. How many times do I do this in the course of a day? It is so easy to analyze, to judge in the privacy of my own mind what my friend, my enemy, my spouse, my child, my boss, or my pastor is really thinking or feeling about me. So basically what he's saying is that shame isolates us from God. It isolates us from others, and then after it's got us kind of off in our own corner, away from the actual person or, or God who you're supposed to be in intimate connection with, once he's got us isolated, then he provokes us to have these thoughts and ideas about these significant people in your life without actually involving them in the conversation. Come on. Anyone done that one before? I mean, think about all the times you've had an imaginary conversation in your head with people who aren't in the room. Yeah? Uh-huh. You play both sides of the conversation. You know how that goes, right? Well, you said this, and you just, you know both parts. Of course, imagining all of the worst possible outcomes, you know, assuming that the other person has all of your worst interests in mind instead of your best, 
You have this imaginary conversation where you're going to win. Of course you are. You're playing both parts. See, that is shame telling you that, that you are something wrong. And it's telling you that the other person is something wrong. We, ask, we, we escalate it beyond they did something wrong to they are wrong. So how did Jesus deal with this problem? So in previous weeks, we've been, you know, starting in Easter, all the way back to Easter. We just talked about the blood of Jesus, the blood of Jesus. We've talked about how the power of the blood of Jesus is, is that that washes away every sin and every failure of our past right that's what the blood does it washes us white as snow every sin from our past our present and our future is covered it is washed away by the blood of jesus someone say amen your criminal record has been permanently erased Every shameful thought, every shameful act or behavior has been wiped clean by the blood of Jesus. But how do we deal with the problem of feeling like I'm something wrong? Because these are two different things. Well, there's a man, his name is Watchman Nee. He was a Chinese church leader and a Christian teacher who worked in China uh, during the 20th century, he died in 1972. And during his 30 years of ministry, he published all kinds of books explaining the Bible. And one of his great books that I love, I just love it, is called The Normal Christian Life. And it is a book that discusses and it goes through the book of Romans, brilliantly, with great illumination. I encourage you, you can find it practically for free online, buy it on Amazon. He goes through the book of Romans and just masterfully illuminates it. But in that book, he makes one of the most powerful statements and I hope you write this down because this is, this is critical. He says this. He says, the blood of Jesus deals with what we have done. The blood of Jesus deals with what we have done. Here's the big idea for the day. The cross of Jesus deals with who we are. The blood of Jesus deals with, with, with what we have done. The cross of Jesus deals with who we are. It is the blood that disposes of our sins. But it is the cross that strikes at the root of my capacity to sin. 
In other words, our deliverance from shame is found in the cross of Christ. If we are to effectively deal with the lie that I am something wrong, I am something bad, I have to apply the cross of Jesus to my life. The cross is the only way that we can be delivered from shame. Let's look at Hebrews chapter 12. Verse 1, it says, Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame. Say that with me, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of of God. Jesus despised the shame of the cross because that is what the cross represented in ancient times. The cross was an instrument of torture for the worst of humanity. Romans used the cross to torture and humiliate criminals. It was for the lowest of the low. This is, this is where the rapist came to die. The murderer, the pedophile. Murderers of family and children. They got this kind of execution. I mean, seriously, if you want to kill somebody, there's a lot quicker ways to do it. You just lop their head off like John the Baptist. The cross was a final word. It was this final statement that it was declaring what kind of person you were. It was a defining statement. It says, this is the worst of humanity. This person, his life, it was worthless. He was worthless. It was the final statement that it wasn't, you know, just that you had done bad things. It was the final statement that said you are an evil person. That's what makes the crucifixion such an injustice for Jesus. Because Jesus was none of those things, and yet he chose to despise the shame of the cross and take the penalty for you and me. Jesus dealt with our sin nature, our capacity for sin, through the cross. Again, the blood deals with sins, but the cross deals with the sinner. I'm going to say that again. The blood deals with our sins, the cross deals with the sinner. And, this, and a sinner is who we were before the cross of Jesus is applied to our lives. We are bad. And because Jesus endured the cross, he dealt with the shame of being a sinner. Galatians chapter 2, verse 20. 
I have been crucified with Christ, and it is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Amen. When Jesus was crucified, the Bible says that we were crucified with him. And when we were crucified with Christ, that means the old man, the old part of me, the sinner that I was, is dead. It is dead, gone, doesn't exist anymore. I can no longer be defined as someone who is bad. I have become something that is good. Yes, we are a new creation in Christ, are we not? Second Corinthians chapter five, verse 17. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is what? A new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. You see, it is through our birth in Jesus that we no longer have to allow shame to define us. It doesn't, it can't define us as being evil or wrong or a sinner. Salvation through Jesus is what deals with shame at its root. Isaiah 45 verse 17 But Israel is saved by the Lord with everlasting salvation. You shall not be put to shame or confounded to all eternity. Now let's go back and look at 2 Corinthians 5.17. But I want to look at it in context with verse 16. 2 Corinthians 5.16. It says, From now on, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh. Even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh, we regard him thus no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation, and the old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. So, in this verse 16, we have Paul. He's stating that because of what Jesus has done, we can no longer evaluate, judge, or relate to somebody through worldly standards. For us as Christians, we must see everyone around us through the eyes of Jesus. I can no longer judge you by what you wear, by what you drive, how well you communicate, how much money you make, what family you came from, your education, your occupation. None of those things can be weapons of shame against you any longer. And not only can I not evaluate you by those standards, I can't even evaluate myself by those standards. Do you hear what I'm saying? Do you get this? Because we can go get all holy and go, well, I just won't say bad things about Tom, but I'm a worm. 
I'm a terrible person. I mean, what happens when we evaluate ourselves or, or each other by those standards? Shame kicks in and we start identifying with our flesh instead of through the cross as a new creation. God has placed inherent value in every person of the human race. Because Jesus died for everyone, not just everybody in this room. Jesus died for the whole planet. Every soul. That means everyone has value. Everyone has value. Everyone has importance and significance. See, shame wants to make everyone value less. I don't need you, and I don't need you, and I don't need you, and you're no good, and you're no good, and that group of people are no good, and that group of people are no good, and they're worthless, and they're dumb, and they're going to hell, and blah, 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 blah. Everyone has value. The cross levels the playing field in terms of value for everyone. So here's what shame can do. Shame is an indicator of every area of my life that my mind is not renewed to the new creation that I am in Jesus. I'm going to say that again. Shame is an indicator of every area of my life that my mind is not renewed to the new creation that I am in Jesus. Romans 12, 2 says, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. See, the renewed mind, it sees everything through the cross. Everything. It sees the worst of society through the cross. The, re the renewed mind says, I'm a new creation. The renewed mind, it doesn't allow shame to define us. It doesn't allow shame to give me power to define who you are. Think about the job or career you lost or got fired from. Does it still hurt? Or can you see it as a learning experience? Think about when your marriage failed or your girlfriend or boyfriend dumped you. Does it still hurt? Does it, have you allowed it to communicate that you're unlovable? Or can you see and admit your mistakes, but yet still feel worthy of love? Think about all your failures around sex and porn. 
Do you see yourself as broken and stained, hopeless? Or can you see yourself as a new creation, pure and spotless by the blood of Jesus? See, there's, there's no real formula to getting rid of shame. It's, it's what we've been talking about for weeks now. It's just believing that we have been crucified with Christ. And I no longer live. But Christ, who lives inside of me. Amen. Our minds just have to be renewed to this fact. Every single day. Otherwise, shame is going to isolate you from God and from God's people, from your family, your friends. It is the cross that delivers us from being a sinner. It does away with the old man and it creates a brand new person that's who we are we are brand new creations in christ and once we start believing this then shame will start to be seriously forever broken in your life we will stop thinking that we are bad or evil or broken and we will start living with hope and peace and joy When I went to Bethel for a leadership intensive at the end of my sabbatical a few years ago, um, the, the, the conference, it had ended and I had a, another day before I had to fly home. And so I, I drove out to a park on Shasta Lake and it was, you know, beautiful sunny day, pine trees, lake, sitting on the beach on a pic picnic bench. I find a picnic bench and I sit down. And I was reading a devotional sitting there and I was asking God some questions. And my first question to God was, what do you think about me? And I sat there quietly for a moment. And the Lord spoke to my heart and he said, I've put you on the earth to have great authority. My eyes started to fill with tears as I allowed those words to just sink into my heart. So I'm just enjoying this and trying to figure out what does that even mean and and before I could even ask another question, the Lord spoke to me again, this time with a little more authority. And he said, I am not embarrassed by you. And when I heard those words, I lost it. Oh, I lost it. I was full-on ugly crying. 
at this bench at the park. There are people playing games, and they don't know what to. If I'm just, I'm just trying to, you know. But I mean, it's the, uh, uh, you know, it's that cry, you know, uh, uh, you know. I'm just heaving and crying and heaving and oh. And so I'm in this full-on ugly cry, and, and, and I have no idea what's going on. But I keep having this, this conflict in my head. It, it goes something like this. You know, I'm like, oh, God, you're wrecking me. Oh, this is awesome. Why is this wrecking me? I don't understand. Oh, God, this is so awesome. And I'm just I'm going back and forth as I'm crying my eyes out. And I'm having this conversation with myself because if you had asked me prior to that moment, if I thought God was embarrassed by me, I would have probably said, nope. In fact, I think he's probably pretty pleased with my faithfulness. But here I am. Out of the blue, this statement comes, it hits my heart, and I am wrecked completely over it. And so when I finally settle down and I start to think about what God had said, God starts to show me some major moments in my life where when, when people had told me how embarrassed they were of me. I always hung out with older guys, didn't really have any friends my own age, and of course I was looking for their approval, and we'd go out and I was probably 13 or 14, and they'd be 16, 17, 18, 20, whatever. I'd act like a 13 or 14-year-old. And they'd tell me to shut up. Quit acting stupid. You're embarrassing me. I'm not bringing you here if you keep acting like that. Well, I wanted to be there, so guess what I did? You won't even know I'm in the room. He showed me that I had felt my dad's embarrassment all my life. Felt that he was embarrassed by me. And finally, he showed me my own heart. And that deep down I'd felt like a failure. That I was an embarrassment to God, to my church, to my role in the region. Shame had been telling my story my whole life. Even after Jesus saved me, shame was still telling my story. And all our inner healing people, don't worry, I did the whole, I forgive my dad. (laughs) I forgive these people who were embarrassed of me. I forgive myself. I think a lot of us in here today, if we're honest, could say that shame has been telling your story for a long time, too. All the failures in life, in business, in relationships, in marriage, they're trying to tell us that we are broken, that we're bad, that we're evil, 
or that were just simply not worth loving. But the cross says, you are a new creation. You are a new creation in Christ, and God is not embarrassed by you. Shame began at the garden, but it ends at the cross. We only have to renew our mind and believe that we have been crucified and I no longer live. It is Jesus who lives in me. I am no longer bad, broken, evil, and unworthy of love. God's proven my worth through His Son, Jesus. So I'd like to ask the altar team and the prophetic team to come forth. I just ask everybody to close your eyes just for a moment. Just close your eyes. I just want you to just search your heart for a moment and ask the Lord, is there some place in me where I am still, I'm still carrying shame? from a job I got fired from, a failed relationship. (coughs) Criminal record or past. Sexual behavior. Now I want you to take that thing, that moment, that whatever it is, and in your mind, I just want you to walk it up to the cross. Walk it up to the cross. Walk it up. And I want you to nail that thing to the cross right now in your mind. See yourself putting it to death through the crucifixion of Jesus. And now in your mind's eye, I want you to just turn around because Jesus is standing right behind you. Turn around. Walk into his arms. And let him heal. Wash away that sin. 
and to speak tenderly into your ear how much he loves you, how little he is not embarrassed by you. And if you need to go ugly cry, you go ugly cry right now. Father, I release God right now over this room, God. The deliverance of shame in Jesus' name. The power of the cross. God, I declare the power and the authority of the cross today to destroy our sin man, to destroy the identities that we've carried. That says, I'm a sinner, I'm broken. God, I declare this morning that the power of the cross has destroyed the sin man, the old man that we have been. Through the power of the cross, God, we believe and receive today your healing and full restoration. Upon our lives, God. God, I pray that we would renew our minds with this truth. That we would believe, God, that we were crucified with Jesus. And I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. So if you're here today and you've never accepted Jesus... You've never received what he did for you on the cross. Today is the day to change that. Today is the day that you can deal with shame by taking it to the cross and saying, Jesus, you be my savior. I will be your follower. If you are here today and you say, I need Jesus, I need to be saved. I need him to save me from my sins. I need him to wash my past away and I need him to make me a brand new person. If you're here today, when I dismiss, I'm asking you to come forward and to pray with some of these people up here. This is the only way to break shame. This is the only way to be delivered from who you have been. It's through the cross of Christ. There is no other path. There is no other way. There is no other option. This is it. So, Father, I release the spirit of salvation upon this house. God, for every son and daughter who has not yet said yes, but today's the day, God, I release the spirit of adoption right now. A fall on every heart that needs to come and confess Christ today, God. I release that now in the name of Jesus. And for those of you who have said yes and you need extra prayer when I dismiss, I want you to come forward and get prayer. And maybe you just need to come to the altar and you just need to kneel and take this thing to Jesus. And we will leave you alone. But today is a day for a change. It is a day for a new 
new, new moment, a new time, a new day. So, Father, as we go today, we thank you, thank you, thank you for the work of Jesus on the cross. We thank you that, God, we no longer have to be bad and broken. We thank you, Father. And I just, Father, I seal this time today. I seal this day, God, that we would be renewed in our thinking, that we would walk with Jesus, that we would accept his salvation today, today, today. So, God, I bless this house. I bless everyone in this room to walk with God and to be full of joy, full of peace, full of hope, because I am good because of Christ. I release joy, peace, love, and hope today, God, in the name of Jesus. So, Father, we seal this day. We bless you, God. We give you thanks. And everybody says, 